Welcome to the one o'clock upload of Inside Four Walls for the 30th of September. It's quite hard to believe we're already in, well, we're almost to the 10th month of 2021. This year has been rough for many people. A lot has happened, but it's also seemed like a month, like a year entirely, just on a hurry to get over. Though, in the opposite direction, it feels like 9-11 was a month and a half ago already. It was only a little over two and a half weeks ago. Insane. Well, today we'll be reading, well, now we'll be reading that article I was going to read earlier, but, you know, that article took a lot to get through. So this article from the conversation is why the FDA is funded in part by companies it regulates. Again, that is from the conversation and written by Michael White. Without any further ado, welcome to the one o'clock upload of Inside Four Walls. I'm your host, James Madison. Let's get right into it. The article is from the conversation. Again by Michael White. Headline, Why is the FDA funded in part by companies it regulates? The Food and Drug Administration has moved from an entirely taxpayer-funded entity to one of increasingly funded by user fees paid by manufacturers that are being regulated. Today, close to 45% of its budget comes from these user fees that companies pay when they apply for approval of medical device or drug. As pharmacist and medication and dietary supplement safety researcher, I understand the vital role that the FDA plays in ensuring the safety of medications and medical devices. But I, along with many others, now wonder, was this move a clever win-win for manufacturers and the public, or did the place or did it place patent safety second to corporate profitability? It is critical that the US public understands the positive and negative ramifications so the nation can strike the right balance. The FDA blocks thalidomide. Americans in the early 20th century were outraged when they found out their manufacturers used poor quality methods for producing food and medication and used unsafe, ineffective, and undisclosed additive ingredients in medications. The result The resulting Food and Drug and Cosmetic Act of 1938 gave the taxpayer-funded Food and Drug Administration new authority to protect the U.S. consumer. One of the FDA's most shining successes occurred in the late 1950s when the agency refused to approve thalidomide. By 1960, 46 countries allowed pregnant women to use thalidomide to treat morning sickness, but the FDA... Oh, this is what we read about earlier. One of the things we read about earlier. But the FDA refused on the grounds that the studies were insufficient to demonstrate safety. 
<clears throat> Debilitating birth defects resulting from thalamide arose in Europe and elsewhere in 1961. President John F. Kennedy heralded the FDA in, the 1960, in 1962 for its stance. An FDA-driven by data and not corporate pressure prevented major tragedy. Yes, this was the uh, pharmaceutical that had the side effect of stunted limbs in newborns. We actually had just read about that in the 8 o'clock upload. Same upload that this was originally supposed to be a part of, but that article ran on a lot longer than I had anticipated. How many AIDS changed how the FDA is funded. How AIDS changed how the FDA is funded. My apologies. The FDA continued its work fully funded by the U.S. taxpayer for many years until this model was upended by, new infectious, by a new infectious disease. The first U.S. case of HIV-induced AIDS occurred in 1981. It was rapidly spreading with devastating complications like blindness, dementia, severe respiratory disease, and rare cancers. Well-known sports stars and celebrities died of AIDS relating to complications, such as Freddie Mercury. Uh, Magic Johnson in the 80s caught AIDS, but he's actually one of the few people who's fully who seems to have fully beaten it. Granted, there was a lot of money thrown at it for him. Well-known, oh, I read that part, died of complications. AIDS activists were incensed about long delays in getting experimental HIV drugs studied and approved by the FDA. Yes, that one professor was part of this, and he said he regretted it. In 1922, in response to immense pressure, Congress passed the Prescription Drug User Fee Act. It was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. W. With the act, oh, with the act, the FDA moved from a fully taxpayer-funded entity to one funded through tax dollars and new prescription drug user fees. Manufacturers pay these fees when submitting applications to the FDA for drug review and annual user fees based on the number of approved drugs they have <clears throat> they have on the market. However, it is a complex formula with waivers, refunds, and exemptions based on the category of drugs being approved and the total number of drugs in the manufacturer's portfolio. Over time, other user fees for generic over-the-counter biosimilar biosimilar Animal and animal genetic drugs, Aver and Ivermectin come to mind immediately reading that, as well as for medical devices were created. As time passed, the FDA's funding has increasingly come from the industry that it, that it regulates. At the FDA's total U.S. $5.9 billion budget, 45% comes from user fees, with 65% of the funding for human drugs regular. Uh, regulatory activities are delivered from the user fees. These user fees, pro these user fee programs, must 
be reauthorized every five years by Congress, as you remember from the other article we read this morning. Places like pharmaceutical companies like Acadia, as we read about earlier, have had a history of greasing the palms of Congress multiple times to get their way. Again, the article that I read this morning is linked in that podcast uploads description. I highly encourage you to read it for yourself and draw your own conclusions. Back to the article. User fees that must be reauthorized every five years by Congress. And the current agreement remains in effect through September 2022. Have user fees worked? The FDA and the drug F- the FDA and the drug or device manufacturers negotiate the user fees. They also negotiate performance measures that the FDA has to meet to collect them and propose changes in the FDA's processes, which is what we read earlier when they, I believe it was, I have the name of it right here, uh, Nuplazid, the drug Nuplazid, when it failed in its original trials, they had the measuring scoring scale shifted in order to make it pass, even though placebo showed far more benefits than taking the actual drug itself. Anyway, proposed changes in the FDA's processes. Performance measures include things such as how quickly the FDA responds to meeting requests how quickly it generates correspondence, and how long it takes for submissions of new drug applications until the FDA approves or refuses approved drug or product. Because of the additional funding generated by user fees and performance measures that the FDA has to meet, the FDA is quicker and more willing to discuss what it wants to see in an application with manufacturers, it also offers clear guidance for manufacturers. In 1987, it took 29 months from the time a new drug application was filed by the manufacturers for the FDA to decide whether to approve the medication in the U- in the U.S. However, in 2014, it only took 13 months, and by 2018, it was down to 10 months. Yeah. I have to say, when you come to uh, experimenting and running trials on drugs that could possibly kill individuals who take them, I feel like shortening the amount of time from clinical testing to approval is not a very good thing. Especially before when we've seen... Uh, especially when we've seen just... But the FDA repays industries by rushing risky drugs to market in exchange of having them wait for longer periods of time. Changes in more recent years have also increased the number of standard new drug applications approved the first time around by the FDA from 38% in 2005 to 61% in 2018. In diseases where there are not many medication, medication options for patients, the FDA has a priority review process where 89% of new drug applications were approved the first time around and the approvals were completed 
in eight months in 2018. All this occurred while the number of new drug applications have been increasing over time. Most recently, the COVID-19 pandemic has seen the FDA provide emergency use authorization for potential treatments in matter of weeks, not months. The infrastructure has the capacity to review available information so rapidly is due in large part to funding from user fees. Wish they'd use it more. While the number and speed of drugs approvals have been increasing over time, so have the number of drugs that ended up having serious safety issues coming to light after FDA approval. Myocarditis, anyone with a side of fucking heart murmurs? With a certain novel virus vaccination that, by the way, a virus that 80% of the population already have immunity to, to some level. Yeah, be it natural or from already having the disease. A disease with a 99.9% survivability rate for everyone under the age of 70. Excluding those with comorbidities and obesity, of course. Obesity being a comorbidity in itself. But I'm going to read that again to you. While the number and speed of drugs approval have been increasing over time, so have the number of drugs that end up with serious safety issues coming to light after FDA approval. Now, that tells you something right there. A vaccine that was made in under a year, as Trump will always brag, they said it couldn't be done in nine months, and it was done in nine months. It's literally a miracle. Everyone agrees. It's the greatest miracle of all time. The best drug. The best vaccine. No vaccine has ever been more safe, more secure, more excellent than this one in nine months. Now approved by the FDA under an administration I trust far less than the Trump administration, mind you. I don't fucking buy it. And we're already seeing all these health complications from it. 60% of new hospitalizations when it comes to COVID are people who are having breakthrough cases. Is it really breakthrough cases when the majority of people who are vaccinated are now being hospitalized with severe COVID symptoms? But the sheep will just bap on forever. And again, I'm just going to reread this because it's an interesting little sentence. While the number and speed of drugs approval have increased over the years or over time, so have the number of drugs that end up having serious safety issues coming to light after FDA approval. In one assessment, investigators looked at the number of newly approved medications that were subsequently removed from the market or had to include new black box warnings over 16 years from the approval. These black box, ooh, excuse me. These black box warnings are the highest level of safety alerts that the FDA can employ, warning users that a very serious adverse event could occur. Before the User Fee Act was approved, 21% of medications were removed or had new black box warnings, as compared to 27% afterwards. 
drugs. That means beforehand, there were less drugs having to be recalled, and now there are far more. Some potential reasons that more adverse effects are coming in light after a drug is approved, including approval, including senior FDA officials overturning scientists' recommendations, a lower burden of proof for medications approval, and more clinical data in new drug applications coming from foreign clinical trial sites that require some Um, that require additional time to ask to assess in an environment where regulators are rushing to meet tight deadlines. A lack of money limits FDA. User fees are the visible way to shift some of the financial burden to manufacturers who stand to make money. They stand to make millions. As we heard somebody from the Project Veritas who works at the FDA said, we look at people as money and we assess their value based on how much they're worth as money. Me and you, as far as the FDA is concerned, are walking cartoonish Mr. Monopoly bags of coins and cash. And that's all they see you. User fees are a visible way to shift some of the financial burden to manufacturers who stand to make money from the approval and sale of drugs in the lucrative U.S. market. Successes have occurred and provided U.S. citizens with medications more quickly than before. Over 100,000 readers. Oh. Why would you have that there? Middle of the paragraph, really? Over a thousand readers rely on the conversations newsletter? Fuck your placement. However, without careful consideration of what is being negotiated, the FDA can become weak and ineffective, unable to protect its citizens from the next thalamide. There are some signs that the pendulum may be swinging too far in one direction. Of the manufacturers. <laughs> Additionally, while drug approval functions at the FDA are well funded, the FDA is insufficiently funded to protect consumers from other issues such as counterfeit drugs and dietary supplements because they cannot collect user fees to do so. In my view, this is the opinion part, in my view, these functions need to be identified and require additional taxpayer funding. And again, this is authored by C. Michael White. The link to this particular article will be in the description of this podcast. The headline again is, Why is the FDA funded in part by companies it regulates? That being said, it is now almost 4 in the morning, and I have to be up at 8. So I will see you tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. for another podcast episode. 
Sorry for the inconsistent scheduling. Uh, the new job I'm working, plus some background projects I have in the works, have been taking up a lot of my time lately. I'm deeply sorry. I do my best to be as consistent as possible, but there are some days where I'll only be able to get one episode out, and some days where I just slip through the cracks. And I know that's very unfair for a lot of you guys who you know, log into your accounts to see if I've uploaded. And again, I'm very sorry for any inconveniences that that may cause. Uh, so, a couple recommendations I would make if you want someone else to fill your morning besides me. Uh, Stephen Crowder, Monday through Thursday, uploads at 10 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Tim Poole uploads at 10, 1, and 4, and 8 o'clock, Monday through Friday. Uh, you can also watch We Are Change. He uploads typically between 10 noon or 10 and 1. Those are a couple guys who will get your morning off to a good start. There's also the early morning Salty Cracker upload you can get. You can catch. Uh, those are just some good alternatives to my content. They also are a little bit more polished in the sense that they've been doing this a lot longer than I have. And they got all their stuff down packed. And me, I'm still a little rough around the edges, but I think I'm getting better as time goes on. And I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and have a great rest of your day. Peace.